evening, everyone. Um, Lady Holder had like some parental responsibilities and couldn't be with us tonight. I know, I know. Should I have to put up with? She's gonna listen to this later and then send me a message, tell me I'm an asshole. It'll be great. It's messed up priorities. You're absolutely right. It's absolutely messed up. Oh no, no, it's fine. She's just um socializing with her with her family instead of us. I'm for real. Are you serious? Cause we're awesome. I would pick you guys over almost any member of my family, to be perfectly honest. Cause they're annoying. I feel abandoned too. I do. I really do. Anyway, tonight's um, topic is a continuation of yesterday's topic, um, but we're going to take a different slant on it and talk about character motivations because um, the second half of that conversation from yesterday, uh, I kind of wanted Lady Holder's input, you know, as it comes to um, reshaping canon events. So later in the week, we'll um, have a show with her and we'll talk about reshaping canon events to fit your um, plot and how you can do that and um and the, and the ramifications of doing so and how all that works. So, um tonight we're doing character motivations and the consequences um that pop up when you least expect it and Julie will be my guest again this evening. Um so I'm going to put her on the air and we're going to get started. I had to click you 3 times. You know, I don't know if my phone is muted or not, so if you hear me, great. If you don't, I don't know. I hear, I hear you. I hear you. Oh, yay, because my hands are busy. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be unbusy in a minute. <laughs> I was like, hey, if I'm muted, they're just going to get dead air. That was like not a deliberate joke there. <sighs> Much like the well, insertion points. I know, yeah, insertion points. Um, and speaking of insertion points, um, I'm uh, I finished my first draft of my um, James Potter leaves Britain with his kid instead of following Dumbledore's advice AU, um, which doesn't still doesn't have a name, um, and it's currently 50k. And I realized that in my efforts to explore James as a character, I pretty much basically sidelined Lily, and that's craziness. So in my second draft, I'm going through and I'm ad- I'm putting in spots where I'm going to add scenes from Lily's point of view and explore how she handled um, the, uh, the isolation uh, and all that stuff and, um, you know, Harry's education and all those things and how, you know, she went from being a woman who I think – Considering how smart she was, would have been very motivation, very motivated um, and career oriented, to a woman who's mm-hmm. stuck in this um, cottage villa, whatever they they live in. I haven't really decided. Um, in the middle of nowhere, and all she has is her kid and her husband. I, have lost I would go my fucking mind. That shit. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because she is, she's 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 brilliant. She's I mean, she's Hermione. Right, so just put Hermione in a cottage where she may or may not have muggle conveniences. All she has is her kid and her husband. And the husband is slowly going to start crazy too. <laughs> I mean, just 
It's a recipe for disaster. And they've got a very bright child who probably also gets very bored. Very bored. So yeah. So um, yeah. I'm I'm going back through that and I'm adding to it and I'm I'm probably thinking it's going to end up being. Um, currently, it's 143 pages, um, but I expect it to be at least 300 when I finish the, the on the the second draft. So that'll be 100k for the first book in this particular series. Anyways, yeah, I like I'm pretty it. Excited, pretty excited. Um, but when we talk about character um, motivations, well, this is in the 80s. They didn't have internet anyway, so she's not missing the internet. I mean, I know the. The, the internet was actually born in the 70s, but for those of you who weren't in the 80s and early 90s, regular people didn't have the internet. And if they did, it might be that Usenet shit. Um, what was it? Those little message boards? Those little. It was very limited and very not entertaining. And the internet didn't explode as an entertainment source until the late 90s. I think I was probably at, what, maybe 15 or so when we first got AOL, but we were one of the only people in our neighborhood who had even had a computer at home. Right, um, right. And it was, uh, so there's like nobody on it. <laughs> My first computer took cassette tapes, okay? <laughs> oh, dear. And I had a I had a Buck Rogers game on my game. Oh, I played that game until it the, uh, until the tape literally broke. Uh, yeah, so my mine took um, my second computer took the five inch floppies, but my first computer took regular cassette tapes. That's just you're really dating yourself now. I know, right? <laughs> I was very young. Um, I remember the debut of the first Windows. Mhm. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, I had the black screen, the green text, and um, the keyboard was mechanical, so it was hellacious amount of noise, and um, I wasn't allowed to write on it during primetime TV, because the computer was in the living room, and if I was writing... Nobody else was doing anything else because they couldn't hear anything else. Clack, 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 clack. Like Lady Holder's keyboard times six. (laughs) (laughs) Those mechanical, those original mechanical keyboards were so noisy. So noisy, yeah. Um, And then um, we got Max in school, and that was super exciting. But that's really completely, totally off topic. Um, uh, But, uh... One thing I want to talk about um, is the character of Sam Carter. And I want to talk about the difference between making a character a bad guy and bashing a character. And I think it boils down to motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you give um, a character no motivations for being an asshole and they're an asshole anyway, that's character bashing. But if you take a canon character who necessarily may not be a bad guy or a good guy or whatever, and you give them motivation to be an antagonist for your hero, that's not bashing. That's just making your making the character the bad guy. But a bad guy without motivation, that's 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 where you get character bashing. At least that's my opinion on it, and. Anyway, that's just how I think. 
And 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 bad guys without motivation are very um, two dimensional. And now sometimes bad guys are um, not on screen. Like their motivations are driving the story. Like everything they're doing is like the underpinnings of what's going on in your story. And their motivations, while they may not be clear, they're driving your plot. Even if you never really focus on the bad guy, their motivations are so important when you don't see them. Um, but, it, but a two-dimensional bad guy, um, if you're, and we're talking about not just you know, like a random killer or your thing, but you're, you know, you're, you're, your antagonist um, who's just doing wackadoodle stuff for absolutely no reason. And like very, a joker. Yeah, it's very flat. It's very flat. Unless it's just, unless gratuitous violence is just the goal. And they're crazy, you know. But there's just so many times you can write a character who's just crazy before it gets really fucking old and boring. I'm, I'm just saying. Just saying. I appreciate crazy as much as the next person, but there has to be some depth. You need to give me some. But talking about Sam Carter, and specifically, specifically, talking about when she sends Rodney to Siberia. Now, that, and this is something that um, was pure revenge on her point of view. And she did it because Rodney was a political pawn. And he didn't know it. He was just doing what he was told to do. He was ordered to do. He comes into the SGC. He doesn't have any evil, dark motivations. His superiors do. And he's not aware of that. And it wasn't a big deal for Sam Carter's character arc because Rodney was at that moment, at that point in the Stargate canon, a throwaway character. And tossing him over to Siberia had no real impact on viewers. It was funny. And I remember finding it pretty funny at the time, too. And then Stargate Atlantis happened and Rodney became this full-fledged person with all these flaws and vulnerabilities, and we got to know him right, and suddenly he was somebody we cared about. And then we look back on Sam Carter throwing him to Siberia for something that was absolutely not his fault, and she became a bitch. Was, was that the writer's intention? No. But because they threw that character such Siberia for a joke, which we talked about in Dead, um, in Dead Air last night, um, it shifted our perspective of Sam once we got to know Rodney. And that's right. He wasn't supposed to be originally in um, Atlantis. He auditioned for the role of Dr. Ingram, but once they got him on the set and he auditioned, they were like, well, why can't, why you can just be Rodney? And he was Rodney again, and they took him, and he was, um... <sighs> and for a while there on the Stargate, on the main, like, Stargate thing, Rodney's middle name was Ingram, and then they changed it to Meredith, probably to make a joke, obviously. Um, um, but, um... So... And doing that to Rodney in SG-1 completely shifted the perspective of 
the audience when it came to Rodney and Sam Carter and their interactions. And all Hello. of a sudden, Sam becomes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Sam becomes the great, um, the great target for being bashed uh, in fandom because people. I actually think it's interesting. I actually think that fandom likes Rodney better than they like Sam. In the end, in I'm not. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. Um, He's a great character to play with as far as um, writing goes. Uh, he's played by a very talented actor. Um, and a lot of Rodney, Stargate fans are men. And so yeah. they uh, they identify with, with, um, with Rodney in ways they can't identify with Sam Carter. They fetishize Sam Carter. They identify with Rodney or John Shepard or Jack O'Neill. I think Rodney was also better developed. He has more depth. Um, well, Sam I Carter was Mary Sue. She, yeah, she was. She was. Uh, she never stepped outside of her um, the box they put her in. She was always super good at everything. She never had. I, mean, I think one of the I, Rodney is uh, to me very one of the reasons why I found Rodney relatable from the beginning is because he was in matters of especially matters of bravery or whatever. He he was hesitant to step up to the plate, but he did it anyway. Right. Um, which was very human. It made him very relatable. And from the beginning of the series, Sam to me wasn't very relatable. She was too. She was the way they um, engineer. Um, female characters a lot of the time, which is almost untouchable. Um, they gave her some, you know, I think as the series progressed a little bit, they gave her some, 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 a little bit more depth, but not a lot. Um, and you can see sometimes, especially in the earlier seasons, um, you can see Amanda tapping. You can, there are moments when she says things and you're thinking to myself, Amanda did not want to say that shit. It, she did not want that shit to come out of her mouth, and yet she did it anyway. So Amanda, I think, could see the problems in her character from the very start. Mm-hmm. And, but again, she wasn't well known. She she had no ability to rock the boat, and so she was stuck playing this Barbie. Yeah. Who was a little too good at everything? Nothing ever phased her. Um, it just and Mary and like you said, she's Mary Sue, and Mary Sues are very difficult for people. People don't like them for a reason, and I think one of the reasons why people don't like Mary Sues is because there's nothing relatable about them. Whether it's in a man or a woman, they're just sort of. I mean, the best characters, the best the best protagonists have. Depths, they have flaws, they have quirks that make them somebody that you can. And the funny thing is, I think writers often don't get it because I don't think that they, and my hunch, based upon what I've seen of the way Hollywood writers are, is that they didn't intend Rodney to be as popular with the fans as he was. No. I think they tried too hard to make him the butt of the joke too often for their intention for it was for him to be one of the most popular characters on the show. 
And I think that problem also happened early on with with, with Tony Denozo, which could mm-hmm. explain his uneven characterization. But I don't know how they could have missed that. Um, Mark Harmon is very good looking, but he's a lot older. And Michael Weatherly is beautiful and quite young compared. How could they possibly think that they could put him on a TV show where the only other actor was that much older and not expect him to get a following among young women and men who can relate to Tony better than they can Gibbs? Mm -hmm. That's just dumb. Also, despite how, it's interesting, despite how the show um, tries to play Gibbs off as being, uh, the character of Tony had a lot more moral conviction than Gibbs did. Gibbs was very flexible uh, with his ethics in a lot of circumstances. When they touched his personal life, it was his professional ethics just kind of went out the door. And you didn't really usually see that kind of flexibility from Tony. Uh, And I think people are uh, attracted to people who are have have a strong 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 center who are very convicted. And Gibbs often sometimes more came off as a vigilante than yes than somebody who was interested in justice. I would agree with that. One thing I would say about um, Sam Carter's character is, okay, they actually set her up to have a really fantastic arc about, and I know a lot of fans don't appreciate this particular um, feature of SG-1, but it needs to be addressed that it was written to be that Jack O'Neill was in love with her. And that's the way it was written. We they slap us in the face with it multiple times. We we can ignore it and and, and slash writers, writers often do, but there it is. And she returned those feelings. But what struck me as so infuriating is that he was willing to risk his career for a variety of bullshit reasons for strangers. For a little girl he met once on a planet. But when it came to the woman he was in love with, risking his career never crossed his mind. To the point where he was willing to die rather than admit he had feelings for her. Remember when they had that thing and they were doing that machine to see who um, the, the traitor was? Carter had to force him to admit his feelings because they thought he was being deceptive about being a traitor, when in fact it was just he was trying to hide his feelings for her. And that's just... And that is demoralizing as fuck. And it never gets explored in canon that she's in this push-pull relationship with her commanding officer, who is, like I said, willing to risk his life and his career for practically anyone but her to acknowledge how he feels about her. And the one time he does do it is because he's forced, and then there's that time when he kissed her when he was in a time loop, and he knew he'd face no ramifications. There would be no consequences. 
In fact, he waited to the very end of that time loop to do it. Now, he admitted it, it during that Zatarak test that he was in love with Carter. And he admitted it when they were wearing those bracelets, when he when he told her he couldn't leave her. But again, they were in a situation where he had no choice. He had to be pushed, pushed, pushed. And this is another case of where once it becomes canon, once it is what it is, we look at it and go, wow, Jack's an asshole. Yes. And he's kind of a coward. Yes. And his priorities are really jacked up. But you know that wasn't the writer's intention. And he was supposed happened. to look noble for ignoring his feelings for this beautiful young woman on his team to do his duty. But that's not how it comes off. And again, nope. this goes back to consequences and character motivations and perception of the audience. And you throw a pair of slash goggles on it, and it gets even worse, actually, because not only is he basically leading Carter down this rose path where she's never going to get any kind of resolution. Um, He's leading Daniel Jackson as well, if you want to read that into it. He brings Daniel close, then he pushes Daniel away. He brings him close, and then he pushes him away. Repeatedly throughout the series. He treats Daniel with respect and then suddenly on a dime it's contempt. Now I've read some stuff about the show and I don't know if this is true or not. Some some of the people in the in the chat room might know that um some of the abrupt changes in tone were reactions um to slash riders. Reactions to fandoms, reactions to Jack and Daniel, and that that's why all of a sudden there was less screen time with the two of them, and um, probably changed the direction of the show after season eight. And you know, the problem with that is that probably the better thing to do, especially since Richard Dean Anderson was phasing himself out of the show, was would have from a character perspective, from a character development, a character motivation perspective, would have been to go, the Jack is going to give up his career to be with Sam because he really loves her. Right. That would have given some um, depth to the character. It would have um, removed this sort of asshole thing um, that he was sort of developing by that point uh, and it would have it would have given even if even if Jack was no longer a regular on the show because he really wasn't a regular on the show after that point anyway uh, it would have then given the Carter's character as she continued on the show more depth there would have been something more in her personal life because one of the things that is lacking in a lot of shows is when you have these um, shows that focus on a tight, highly high-performing team is they have no personal life. And it can actually lead the character to kind of be seen kind of flat, that they're all about their work, at least for me, that's the way I read them. Uh, It's like, don't these people ever take a night off? Don't they have any interests? Don't they do anything besides... 
save the That's planet. what I really liked about Bishop's character. That's the replacement for Ziva on NCIS. She had this relationship outside of work. She had her mm-hmm. husband, and they appeared to have this great marriage. But in true and NCIS then. fashion, and then they tore it apart, and he's a cheater. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy to make to, to to I think characters who seeing a character who has a life. They did this with um Hotch too on Criminal Minds in season 1. He was a happy family man. Uh yeah, he worked a lot, but he clearly loved his family. And they even showed, they did a really good job in the first first season or so um when Hotch was still married of showing the switch that somebody in that kind of career goes through between work and home because some people do have a work persona and a home persona and that he wasn't I mean it it gave his character so much more to have something outside of work then they destroyed that and then Haley had to start you know being intolerant of his job and putting all these pressures on him and then of course she had to go away because everything had to be all about work I mean that's just to me, that, that drives me What was me crazy. really infuriating about that is, because, okay, during that time period, um, the character that Mandy Patinkin played, um, Mandy Patinkin abandoned the show um, with no warning, right? So they had to rewrite the season. But that last episode before Mandy Patinkin's last episode, we get a hint. Hotchner comes home, and him and Haley are okay, everything's fine. But he realizes... And you see it on his face. It is obvious where they're about to go with this. Um, his wife is cheating on him. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the character Gideon is lost from the show because Mandy Patinkin's pansy pussy um, asshole who can't follow a contract. Um, why they gave him another show, I don't know, because he, he did the same thing to Chicago Hope. Was it Chicago Hope? Or Chicago something. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, he did the same thing to them. He can't handle that kind of commitment. They they should have never risked it. Um, and he put out some kind of he put out his statement about this. Is just a complete aside, but it really pissed me off that his <laughs> rationale was he was drawing a moral line because of the way women on the show were treated. Ah, uh, no, that is complete bullshit. There are actually few programs on TV, in my opinion, that deal with women as well as. Criminal Minds does. It's one of the reasons why I keep watching it. Right. It was just his excuse. It's just another bullshit excuse for the fact that he can't um, commit. Mm-hmm. He is an awesome actor. Unfortunately, he's completely unprofessional. <laughs> he, he probably is a little crazy. Yes, I agree. Um but that storyline got dropped completely, and suddenly um, their marriage was over with no explanation um, because they had to fill in the, the hole that Gideon's character left. Um, and they went into a different spin with um, Strauss and all that. And then uh, Haley has to be shipped off because of a serial killer, and then they kill her. Because, of course, they do. Mm-hmm. They did the same thing with Rossi. They start to give Rossi a little bit of a life with and him and Aaron, him, him and Aaron getting together, and then the killer. I, I'm terrified of what's going to happen to his daughter. 
I know. I, I'm, I'm going to send somebody a foul letter if, somebody, if they kill his daughter. I just want you to know that's just what's going to be bad. Because um, I thought when she followed that serial killer that, 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 that they were going to kill her. I did too. It was infuriating. Um, oh, here. Have, did you ever watch The Closer? Mm hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I loved her accent. Rem- Remember how much you loved Brenda? Yeah. And her strength. From the first episode. From the first episode, I was in love with Brenda. Brenda Lee Johnson, hello. Where have you been all my life? Okay. And so we meet Sharon Rayner. 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 um, Midway through the closer. And she's set up to be the antagonist for Brenda. Right? So you kind of hate Sharon. Oh, Sharon, stop making Brenda Lee's life so difficult. Why you got to be so... And then they start to shift because Kira is going to leave The Closer, and so they revamp the show into major crime. And I realized about halfway through season one that I love Sharon. I, I love her. So now when I go back and I watch the episodes where Brenda is mean to Sharon, I get mad at Brenda. Stop being mean to Sharon. Brenda, she had a hard life. Her husband's an alcoholic and she's all alone. Her kids don't come to see her. Why you got to be so mean, Brenda? <laughs> but see, originally when they wrote those scenes, Sharon was just an antagonist for Brenda. She was a a, a method of spurning Brenda and, and moving her in directions for the show. And it was great. But after we got to know Sharon in Major Crime, suddenly... Brenda's an asshole. <laughs> Why you gotta be so mean? Because my mom pointed it out. She was watching because she loves Major Crime um, as, as much as she loves The Closer. And she was watching some old episodes of The Closer and she called me and she said, Brenda is so mean to Sharon. I said, I know. <laughs> but the first time we watched it, it wasn't um, it wasn't that way. But because we got to know um, Sharon, it changed our perspective on Brenda's um, hostile relationship with a character that we also came to love. Do you watch Major Crime as well? I have not seen Major Crime. Oh, you need to watch Major Crime. It's it's fantastic. But um, it's it, it's it's not a different flair than the closer. Um, but I really appreciate the uh, um, the difference in the storyline and Sharon's um, motivations as a woman and as a mother. And um, just there is a scene where um, she's adopted um, Rusty from The Closer that last season. The, uh, I'm the kid from the streets. Right. She adopts him and they put him in danger. And she tells them, I will kill you if you get my son hurt. And she fucking means it. And it's just like, <laughs> it's just like she bloomed right there in that moment when she stopped being just Sharon to, oh, fuck yeah, Sharon. <laughs> it was like in a minute. It just, it just happened. And um, she's, you know, she's just, she's just really, of course, you know, the actress who plays her is a fucking amazing. So, um, and her name is totally. Mary McDonald. Mary McDonald, yes. Um, Dances with fist, or stands with fist. Yes, stands with fist. Stands with fist. Um, 
but yeah, so what? So that's what happens with the character um, is that uh, once you get to know them, like with Rodney, you develop a certain protective vibe around them. And then when you watch episodes like the Siberia episode and in SG One, um, it, it, it's, it's infuriating. <laughs> You're like, it is. Stop being mean, to Rodney. <laughs> Well, when I mean, when I originally saw the, the the episode where Rodney was banished to, to Siberia, Rodney was you know I I didn't like Rodney. I thought he was kind of a bit of a dick when I first got acquainted with him. Yeah. And but he didn't really put me off all that. But he didn't put me off to such a degree that I actually appreciated. I actually thought Sam. Um, I, it struck me at the time. I remember thinking that it struck me as petty. And it was um, petty. And an abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, and I kind of frowned about it at the time, but I didn't, you know, it didn't affect me over much because, like like you said earlier, um, Sam was the character that I was invested in at that point, somewhat. Uh, I was less invested in her than the other characters because her, um, she was just never, as, didn't have as much depth as any of the other characters in the show. And, uh, but then later, once Rodney t- t- turned up in SG One, well, we did it. You know, not SG One in in, uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like about midway through season two of Atlantis, you go back and you watch that episode of SG One and you double bird Sam Carter. How fucking dare you do that to Rodney? He's gonna suffer so much in Siberia. It's cold there. There's no food. What if there's lemons? <laughs> Yeah, well, I go from I go from thinking that gone from went from thinking it's a petty and abusive power to you need to get a disciplinary action for that. <laughs> you need your ass spanked. You're in so much trouble. Someone write a fix it fix. <laughs> for real. There, yes, there is the episode where Rodney comes back to SG-1 and ends up saving Jack's life. This is before Atlantis as well. Um, and still, they don't treat him with any kind of respect. Which makes the episode with Cameron and the Lemon all the more offensive. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, um, it becomes this... Um, if Cameron and his lemon were the first time, it wouldn't have been funny, but it wouldn't have been horrific. It, it would have because you know Cameron isn't going to actually poison Rodney with the lemon. He's just being an asshole. Men are assholes. That's what happens when men get together. They they become assholes to each other. But when you combine that with all the other things that SG One has done to Rodney, it is profoundly abusive. It crosses a big line into just outright abuse. And it also showed when the way they handled the whole thing about how they handled Rodney's allergy in the show, both shows, was um showed a lack of understanding of um they were using it to make I felt like they were using it to make Rodney look um hypochondriacal. Yeah. And um it showed a lack of understanding of people who have life threatening allergies. They do run around and stress. No peanuts. No no citrus. No berries. They have to because they'll die. 
I have a um, fairly um, at, um, dangerous seafood allergy. And um, I guess about three years ago, I was out with my mom, and um, we were at uh, Red Lobster. And um, she ordered something. Um, I forget what she ordered. And I ordered the shrimp pasta, and I told the girl that I'm allergic to scallops. I'm allergic to scallops is a very big deal. Um, And she said, okay. When my food came out, it was shrimp and scallops. The scallops were diced up, just just like the shrimp. Um, My mother noticed. I didn't notice. And I was throwing my fork around in it, and my mom snatched that plate off the table because she could see um, a really plump piece of scallop from her perspective that I couldn't see. And she had a complete meltdown in the middle of Red Lobster. Lost her fucking mind. And the girl admitted that she had not written it down because she didn't think it was a big deal. And the manager fired her on the spot right there in front of me. My God. Um, I carry an EpiPen. That's how serious my allergy is. I I carry an EpiPen. Um, So now whenever I go into a seafood restaurant, no matter how often I tell them, I pull my EpiPen out of my purse and put it on the table. (laughs) Just because I'm afraid. For good reason. I am afraid. Good good reason. I had, um, in 2014, I had um, an anaphylactic reaction to Brazil nuts. This mm. is not a food that you're going to come in contact with randomly. Most no. kitchens don't have Brazil nuts in them. And they're super but, expensive, number one. <laughs> but because it's such a severe reaction, anytime I eat any, go order anything that has nuts in, in the preparation, any kind of nut, I asked them if they, I asked, do you have Brazil nuts in the kitchen? Because if they're even in the restaurant, I, often nuts are like chopped with the same um, knife or chopped on the same cutting board. So if they have a nut dish, I won't eat if there's Brazil nuts in the kitchen. Um, just to be fair, just to be safe. I mean, Brazil nuts are such an obscure allergy that it's not something that I feel worry about running into. But people think it's funny. It's not that funny. I have to ask about Brazil nuts everywhere I go that has a dessert with nuts, which is most restaurants. Um, because I don't want to die, and be, unlike no. unlike you, seafood allergies, you are likely to come in contact with them. Um, much more likely to come in contact with 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 and scallops unfortunately than you are to Brazil nuts. Scallops are actually pretty cheap, so they mm-hmm. end up in a lot of seafood gumbos and stuff. So if there's a gumbo, you, you, those of you who've never worked in the kitchen might not know this, but um, if they serve a variety of soups, they're often in a warming station where the soups are side-by-side side in vats mm-hmm. to keep warm. Um, and if they have a seafood gumbo on their menu with um, scallops in it, I cannot have any of their soups. Because if you've ever been back there in a kitchen with vats in a warming station, the amount of cross-contamination that is possible is Terrible. unreal. But see, because my allergy is so much more obscure, I don't carry my EpiPen everywhere. I carry it with my travel, and if I'm going to be away for, you know, but I don't carry it 
um, like you do because you're much more likely to come in. So because I don't have it with me, I have to be super careful with the questioning and people think it's ridiculous and like a hypochondriacal that I'm always asking, do you have Brazil nuts? And, um, and that's the trade-off because I'm not carrying my EpiPen for the most part to not having it is that I have to ask, be sure that I ask the question, are there Brazil nuts in your kitchen? And when, when, you, when you make take something serious and you make it a joke, you, this is another case of like we talked about last night, is you have then made everyone in the room who laughed at that joke an asshole. An asshole. So Cameron's an asshole. John's an asshole for suggesting it. Um, Sam's a, Everybody on the data list is an asshole for allowing it. Because at this point, it stops being funny because Cameron's not threatening Rodney with a lemon. He's threatening him with death. That's exactly it. And when someone, that he might as well put a gun to his head. It's really annoying. It's really, that's probably one of the biggest issues I have um, with SGA is, is, is how that allergy is treated. Um, but it is because I do have a severe food allergy. And um, the first time I was exposed to scallops, I went from, I'd never had them because I don't think they, they look particularly appetizing. And I like my seafood to look really appetizing. You know, like shrimp and lobster. Look, that shit looks really good. <laughs> Crab meat. <laughs> it looks really good. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who eats first with their eyes. And scallops don't look like anything. Even when they're browned and butter, they still don't quite look like anything I'd want to put in my mouth. And... I had I had a piece from my from my husband's plate just because I'd never tried it. Um, by the time we got out of the restaurant, I had purple highs from my neck to my ankles, mm. and that was my first reaction. My second was not fantastic <laughs> by any means, and I got an epipen. Um, And this, when you make, if you do something like, um, it's something to consider when you are creating character, giving them traits, is if you give them something like a severe life-threatening allergy, it is going to change them. It's not something that doesn't have a consequences to that decision. It's going to change the way they interact with the world. It's going to change the way that they act in their personal life. It's going to change the level of vigilance they have. It's going to make them different. One of the saddest things I read was in, um, I I believe the thing was called A Hard Prayer. It's an apocalypse fic, and John and Rodney are um, alone. They're not together, and they find each other. And... um, Rodney can't eat any canned food that doesn't have labels. He's he's afraid of it. And there's nobody to help him if he has mm. a um, reaction. Now, I, I, I believe it's called a hard prayer. And he makes his own life detector device and he finds John. And they go to Cheyenne mountain um where the sgc is because rodney knows about the sgc and they you know they end up leaving earth but um 
it um it's it's really uh it's a really great fic. It's called a hard prayer, um, I believe. Um it's great. I I really recommend it. Um it is a very difficult read. It's um there's no like there's no obviously there's no sexual force or anything like that because I don't read that kind of thing. Um there's no rape or or coercive sex or dubious consent, nothing like that. Um it's just it's really hard to see them strip down um to their bare bones um for survival and um it's it's fantastic writing. Um it's hard the hard prayer by Rihanna. And I'm going to put a link up in the um, chat room. And thank you, Xander, for buying that for us. Um, great story. <clears throat> yeah, th- th- there is a there is a gross factor in the story because um, they are surrounded by a lot of dead and decaying bodies. Just saying, keep it in mind. You might want to scroll a little bit. I wouldn't suggest you eat while you're reading it. <laughs> But I highly recommend it. It's a great character study because you learn a lot about um, um, when you shape a character around um, the the basics of survival. You can really strip them down and and really explore who they are. So it's it's just a, it's a really good piece. I highly recommend it. Um, but giving Rodney that allergy and then allowing other characters to make fun of it, like his death would be funny. Um, literally made all the characters around him assholes. That's just, you know. It's just something you have to... People, I think people don't think, you know, a lot of times you don't think through, writers don't think through all of the ramifications of the decisions they're making. Um... So, for instance, um, let's say Harry Potter is an adult and he's meeting his the person he's going to be with. Let's say he's 25. And he's meeting some random person. I'm not even going to pick a character. And they're getting to know each other. Um, and Harry... Um, sits down their first meeting and tells the entire tale of his life to this prospective mate. Just dumps it all out there. What? Why would he do that for a question? Is that consistent with his, his character? Would be questions I would ask if you're going to go that route. But what does that say about Harry that he would do that? And what does it say about the person, his prospective mate, that they would continue to be with him <laughs> after that? Because if any of us, any of us have ever been on a date with somebody who has significantly overshared, <laughs> have you ever seen that person again? Not if I could help it. No. And it's one of the, I think, I think significant oversharing. <laughs> Is one of the things that I see very commonly um, in um, significant oversharing without a reason. It's not like someone is is 
um, in a, is on the stand in a criminal case or something like that and testifying, um, which is which is the case of where you might be legally obligated to overshare. But in casual encounters, so it's important to think about why the character would do something like that. Would the person they're talking to ever see them again afterwards? And if they would, what does that say about them? I mean, these kinds of decisions, and maybe you made the decision for expediency's sake, like let's just get it all out there, but it has ramifications. But what it also, it set up the way you set it up, it makes me think he's so used to people leaving them, leaving him, that he wants to get it over as quick as possible. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And people do that, and that could be legitimate, right? And that might be a legitimate plot choice and a legitimate, legitimate character choice. But be aware of what you're doing. Yeah, if you want all your characters to look like assholes, go ahead and let them make fun of somebody who has a food allergy, and threaten them with that particular food. Great, do that. Or lock Mission accomplished. In a closet who's claustrophobic, or um, I read that in the NCIS fic. I was so mad. Oh, it's terrible. I probably said too much there, but I was so mad. Oh, I was so mad. You don't understand. You know that's why I've unfriended four people in the past week. I have made it clear how I feel about clowns, and you have the ability on Facebook to filter out. Um, who can see your posts. And if you want to post clowns, you need to put me on a fucking list so that when you post a clown, you can decide that I don't see it. Because if I see a fucking clown on my news feed that you posted, I'm unfriending you and I'm never friending you back. I'm, that was a little bit of a rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, I'm right with you. I have a serious clown fucking phobia. King, Not a, fucking it and fucking remakes and fucking clowns and, but sometimes people people don't it's not like you know people don't just post a funny clown pic like um a clown at a birth like the kids a picture of their kids birthday party and there's a clown in the background no they have these horrifying clown images horrifying clown they're designed to be horrible right they're designed to be scary and um which means you're setting out to upset people on your friends list, which makes you an asshole, and we can't be friends anyway. <laughs> I will never but, forget. I'm scrolling, scrolling along on Facebook, and there is the most horrifying clown picture I have ever seen in my entire life right there on my Facebook feed. And I'm like, <sighs> and the thing is, it has been months, and I can see that picture crystal clear is in day. all of its horrifying glory. Make an exemption. Um, I don't consider the Joker or Harley Quinn in that particular. I know they wear clown makeup, but they're not clowns to me. They don't no, get that. I, I don't get that vibe from them. So I wouldn't unfriend you if you posted a poster from Suicide Squad or of Jared Leto dressed up like Joker or Margot Robbie. Because I plan to actually see Suicide Squad. So I don't consider um, Harley Quinn to be on that um, that particular list but um, I did not sleep for three weeks as a child After not, not, not literally three weeks but um, I was up and down with nightmares for a 
about four months and lost a great deal of sleep after I was I made I was made to watch it as a kid. Mm. Um, I I haven't set foot in a McDonald's since I was a um, a small child. I'll go through their drive-through, but I'm not going in one. <laughs> there might be one of those damn statues. I <laughs> know, right? I mean, I didn't even realize it was that bad until um, my senior year of of high school. My mom and um, my dad took me to the circus just because we just went to the circus and there were clowns and I was like oh my god I fucking hate clowns I could barely look at it I, I mean it was just like it was oh I, I, mean, I, I kept turning my head because I had no idea because I, <coughs> I hadn't really been exposed to them beyond that you know Ronald McDonald's thing no, the, they're terrible the little the little doll and poltergeist is an entirely different level of hor- horrific because the only thing worse to me than clowns are ventriloquist dummies. And that little doll and poltergeist is like both made into one. Mm. Creepy dolls rank right up there with clowns. You know, my mother, she, um, she ha- sometimes she just has a completely off moment. Uh, and she knows how I feel about clowns, and she knows how I feel about spiders. And I feel I, I just like clowns much worse than than spiders. Um, but she said, I've got something that will help you with both. I was like, what? So she sends me this picture, something she says she thinks it's very pretty and it will change my perspective on them. It's something called a clown spider. No, no, Mom. No, no, <laughs> that no, didn't help. No, no. No, no. I think the worst part about Pennywise and it is that he fucking turns into a spider. <laughs> you guys realize that, right? Mm-hmm. Pennywise and the spider were the same. It was the same thing. It was the same demon thing. So I told her, I was like, Mom, that didn't help. That didn't help. The only thing you could have sent me worse would have been an ant. I actually have a, my biggest phobia is, uh, is ants, but I actually do a, a little bit better seeing them than the others because my phobia is visceral because I fell in a fire ant mound when I was a child. And um, if you've ever been swarmed by ants, it's something you'll never forget. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had that reaction with bees when I was little. Um, um, here, you know, but... When you give your character a vulnerability like that, and then you let other characters exploit it, it makes your other characters really, really, really terrible. And you've got then, so if you're a whip writer, and you've got it in your head that one of these characters in this scene or something like that is going to um, pop out as, as in a great part of the, great, have a great role in the story coming up. And the reaction to your latest chapter is everybody's going, oh, my God, you know, Bob is such an asshole. I can't believe that guy. And you're going, wait a minute. Bob is about to be the hero in the next chapter, and everybody hates him. What happened? Well, that's probably why. It's because unintended consequences. Something that you thought was funny um, isn't. Was not funny. Actually funny. And, <laughs> and and 
if majority of your readership is going, oh, my God, Bob's an asshole, and then you have, like, a few people going, oh, my God, I love Bob, he's awesome, unfriend those people. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bob's an asshole. <laughs> For real. Um, I think that um, I was all, I was um, ambivalent about Dumbledore when I first started reading the Harry Potter series. Um, I didn't know. I was... Mm-hmm. The first scene, I was like, oh, you asshole. That was kind of, that was stupid. That was not a good idea. Why, what were you thinking? But what cinched it for me was when he said to Harry that he knew. Was it in book three or four, five maybe? He said that he knew that Harry would grow up basically unloved that his time with the Dursleys would be a dark time that he knew that it wasn't yeah book five um and I thought to myself that 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 son of a bitch (laughs) because it was one thing for you to think that he dropped Harry off and he didn't go back and check on him and he he really didn't know what kind of life Harry had but for him to admit that he knew in the very beginning how much strife and hurt Harry would suffer that he knew it and did nothing to stop it that's when I realized that as bad as a Voldemort was, that Dumbledore was worse. And one of the things that makes it so horrible is that all we get about Dumbledore's motivation, all we get about it, is the two words, greater good. That's all. And that is just, A, it's... it's myopic viewpoint it's um who's greater good it's a fucking cop out i immediately read that and i go so he's ordering people's lives like pieces on the chessboard and none of these are new analogies based upon his perception his idea of the moral good and who's right and who's wrong and who deserves to live and who deserves to die. And instantly, and this is my, I probably shouldn't say this and I don't care, it's like he's instantly Republican and... <laughs> You're right. He's like instantly Republican. It's like, what is wrong with you? No. Okay, no. give me one second. I'm put myself on hold because um, if I don't, you guys are going to get an earful of Siberian husky howling. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. Keep going. So with Dumbledore, I needed for him as a, I immediately put him in the bad guy role, and for me to even appreciate him as a bad guy, I need more than the greater good, because that with that being the sum total of his motivation in in the stories, just puts him in such an evil light that I can't even deal with him. I don't, I have such a hard time writing Dumbledore in, in any kind of positive way because his moral superiority and his conviction that his notion of right and wrong is the way it should be for everyone and it's the only one that matters is so offensive. 
It is so offensive. It offends me right down to my toes. The core of my being says that you don't get to um, dictate what is right for the rest of the world, that your viewpoint, you don't get to make your utopia. You don't get to try to drive your agenda that way. And it's a particular, uh, it is a particular hot button of mine. So it became a, a, it became a sticking point with Dumbledore uh, for me that I, I don't know how to portray him in a positive way unless you go back and you just undo canon. You just have to undo it because I cannot, with the motivation we are we are provided. Um, now, could there be some more depth to that? Can a fan fiction writer apply more depth to make him less detestable but still wrong? Maybe he feels like it's a case of um, making up for his mistakes, that he needs to order the world in a way to correct his mistakes, and that he is fighting so hard to make up for his mistakes with Grindelwald. Maybe he sees that he made mistakes in letting Tom Riddle stay in the orphanage. And giving him bad actions for better reasons, even though he's still the antagonist in my mind, even though he's still a dark lord in my mind, he's not as detestable. I think that even if I could have forgiven him for what he said in book five, Mm -mm. when I realized at the end of Deathly Hallows that Dumbledore had put an 11-year-old, I'm sorry, a 15-month-old on the path to suicide. Manipulated his life so that he would be willing to do it. That's when I realized that Dumbledore was worse than Voldemort. It's terrible. And the thing is, people, bad guys, people who are not even bad guys in our world, and in the real world, do stuff like that because they are trying to engineer an outcome. And it's ugly. It's ugly no matter who does it or for what reason. There's a there's an episode of... Um, well, what's really infuriating for me is that I think that Tom Riddle had a happier childhood than Harry Potter. I think that's probably true. There's no doubt he had a lot more freedom. And freedom and safety. And say freedom and safety go a long way. And food. imprisonment is a terrible thing. And food. Um, oh my god, episode- Tom Riddle did have a better childhood than Harry Potter. <laughs> Let's go ahead to your thing. What were you going to talk about next? Let's go over here and pout for a minute. <laughs> do you remember the episode of Numbers where Don decided to let Ian Edgerton torture a suspect to get information about Megan's location? Yes. When she was kidnapped? Um, that was a really difficult episode for me because Don crossed the line. 
He did. He crossed the line. And um, I can understand it was very – one of the things I liked about it is that um, I think it's very realistic that people are faced with those decisions. And often, like in NCIS, when Gibbs is faced with a decision that is um, – pushing his personal buttons, which a member of his team being missing is very personal, Gibbs always does the wrong thing and has no regret. Now, Don did the wrong thing, and eventually he had issue with it. It bothered him. I think he even said to Ian at some point that it wouldn't, wouldn't happen again, that they weren't crossing that line again in another episode, but I could be wrong. Um, but Don talked to his – eventually wound up in therapy over that case, and um, he talked to that crossing the line issue. And that realizing that you crossed the line and having regret about it goes a long way. To It actually made me like him more when I was really disenchanted with him for, for a few minutes. You know what I mean? I really feel like Dawn is the strongest and um – most three-dimensional character in Numbers. He's one of my favorites. I, mm-hmm. I agree. Um, if I um, if I wrote Numbers, um, Don would be my my guy, kind of like John. Your, your Rodney or your John? Yeah, or my Harry Potter. Yeah, Don would definitely be my main character if I wrote Numbers. Um, I don't really find Charlie. I mean, I'm sure Charlie's entertaining, but I don't find him interesting as a writer. So um, I would I probably um, most definitely write Don fanfic if I wrote Numbers. The only reason I've never written numbers fan fiction is because um, dealing with the math math side of it that is so basically intrinsic to the fandom intimidates the hell out of me. I hate math, but yeah, um, I would have to skip the math. Yeah, I actually I I mentioned to you that I started uh, a numbers and NCIS crossover, and um, I uh, I just that's exactly the decision I decided to make because I really wanted to do the a Don Tony pairing and mm-hmm. um I just decided that I would just make math non essential to any plot that I wrote. Well the thing is, is is if you write from Don's point of view, um Don never pretends to get the math. He never um tries to do the math. He waits for the result and so you don't have to dig into care to to, to the math point of view, which would be Charlie's. Mm-hmm. I love Rob Morrow. I really do. Um, we were talking, me and Jilly, about um, um, thigh holsters. No. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, we um, were talking about Dick Frank. <laughs> um, um, Northern, Northern Exposure. Exposure. Northern Exposure. <clears throat> yeah, I, had, I, I, I fucking I, love I, Northern Exposure. Yeah. Northern Exposure was awesome, but. When I the first thing that crosses my mind, it's terrible. I have one track mind. Whenever, whenever Rob Morrow comes up, is thigh holsters and tactical gear. <laughs> I know, right? Because I'm an atheist, but God bless thigh holsters. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in my mind, I have been calling dick frames for like ten years. Hello, SG One. Fifteen years, twenty years, whatever. And Don is an interesting character to, um, in terms of the discussion about character motivation. Don's an interesting example of they explore his motivation a lot in the show. When they put him in therapy, you've got a lot of insight into why he does what he does and the things that he's afraid of, 
and how some of his good traits are driven from kind of a neurotic place. Um, I mean, it had to have been hell growing up with a, a situation genius. with a genius, especially a, a prodigy like Charlie, that that led to the parents being split. He didn't get much time with his mother, and you know you could see his that he just died. wanted. Yeah, and then she died. You could see he just his, his probably his goal in life was to get away and be good at something that had nothing to do with his brother. And then. You know, life, he, he does what he wants, he goes his own way, he makes a name for himself in the FBI, and he does a variety of different things, he's good at everything he does in law enforcement. Mom gets sick, he goes home, and all of a sudden it's in his face that he solves his job better with his brother on board. He does his job better with his brother there. And they really explore the effect of all of that on him. And it's one of the reasons why I found him such a fascinating character, because they explored character motivation a little bit with most of the characters. They kind of they kind of explored Charlie a little bit in the first season, but it's almost like they got bored with exploring Charlie's motivation, and they just kind of dropped it. But Don's is kind of an ongoing progression about what motivates him and how he reacts to things, and it made him, to me, very fascinating. I like the character of Don a lot, yeah. Sorry, I got distracted there for the chat for a second. I, I think they're talking about Northern Exposure in the chat. Yeah. And I was like, no. And where no, it was filmed. Numbers, yeah. numbers wasn't filmed in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I think um, Northern Exposure was. And honestly, you can't really blame them because I'm not sure any of those actors would have let themselves be carted all the way up into Alaska <laughs> somewhere in an isolated town for yeah. filming. No. No, 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 nobody has to apologize. I was just, I just was, uh, I was like, uh, every once in a while I, I pay attention again to the chat room, and, I'm, and when it's gone a direction that <laughs> is different than what we're talking about, I go, wait, what happened? I, mm. Because there's good stuff that comes in chat. I really appreciate John's weakness when it comes to beautiful women. Mm-hmm. Of course, he only really sleeps with one who's under his command, right? And that's Liz. Is there another one? I don't think he ever gets Nikki. She, I think Nikki sees right through Dawn. She's all in that game, and she knows. He, no. <laughs> but I think, yeah, he he bagged Liz. Um, Liz, but, but they, really, started, they started getting before. together. The, the overtures, the beginning of them getting together was before she was under his command. And then she was under his command. Briefly, his because... Command. <laughs> um, Briefly because of uh, Megan going off to the, her DOJ appointment, which was actually because the act, Diane Lane was pregnant. Actually, yeah. But um, I really appreciate Don's weakness when it comes to women. Um, it, it says a lot about his character um, and his um, – I just think it's hot. Uh, I think that in the even though he knows he, he, knows he shouldn't um, – still continue to pursue Liz while she's under his command. Um, he does it anyway. And he he knows he should be ashamed, but he's not. And I, I really like that. I it um 
it never comes off as an um, as an abuse of power because the relationship started before, mm-hmm. and she's not his victim. She but is think, so not his victim. I thought it also spoke to, for the way I interpret it, I thought it spoke to his desire, which goes to character motivation, um, to have more in his life. Yeah. And that he was he open to intimacy. Right. He wasn't just one night standing these women and tossing them over the fence, you know. Um, he he was a sucker for women he thought were beautiful, who he could talk to, so especially women who were related to his work. Um so they could they they had common interests they had a common frame of reference, and he really had a clear desire to have more in his life, and you know it just he was so well flushed out. Um, I never got the vibe that he was interested in Terry in season one, but maybe that's just me. I never got I that vibe. I didn't. I didn't get. I mean, I get that they had a relationship, but it felt. I mean, they were both so okay with it not being not being in a relationship anymore, um, and right. there really wasn't any chemistry between them. That you just kind of went. And actually, the the times when they put in um, mentions to their relationship, or Terry Terry said something at one point about um, some some allusion to Don never doing something in relationships. And it actually came across as kind of out of out of left field because she clearly was okay with them not being in a relationship. So the kind of snotty remark actually went to neg- bad characterization on her part, right? Because it, it just they they hadn't portrayed anything. Um, so this is like another case of an of, of I think a writer trying to score a hit or make something amusing or caustic or barbed. When it was out of character for it to happen, I think they were going to make that relationship at work complicated. Um, but what the problem became is that the actor and the actress did not have any chemistry. Mm-hmm. None at all. Um, it, it was difficult for me to buy. They had a past history, and I saw no future there. Um, I think he honestly he had a more intense and um interesting spark with Liz, but I like that in the end he ended up with um, this really strong, you know, brilliant woman who didn't take a shit. Mm-hmm. And I like that he pursued those kinds of women, that he wasn't hitting easy targets, so to speak. You know, he wasn't, mm-hmm. he he obviously wanted to be challenged at home and at work. And um, it was awesome. I, I think that's probably one of the best parts of his character was his openness to intimacy, especially when you look at other male characters on TV during that time period. You've got John Shepard, who avoids commitment like a plague. Um, you've got Jack O'Neill, who's totally ignoring um, anything that looks like a personal connection. Um, NCIS was starting out around around season. See, around it was NCIS and numbers were kind of in parallel, I think, in the early kind season. of yeah, and then yeah. you know, Gibbs. You see women in the background, but they make a joke out of his ability to fail at marriage. Yeah, because he never. And frankly, that's nothing to joke him. about. Yeah, that's nothing to joke about. Honestly, that's actually one of Gibbs' most dickish traits. Exactly, how does he get down the aisle with these women? Because there's I agree. nothing in Jeep. 
his longest relationship is with Fornell. It really is. Because there's nothing in Gibbs, um, there's nothing in Gibbs, the way he's developed in the show, that explains how he ever got close enough to a woman to marry one. No. So either he had a complete personality shift, or he was so desperate to recreate what he lost with Shannon that um, uh, Gibbs, Gibbs is so badly characterized in, in many respects, and his motivations are so fuzzy that it, it just he's he's such a he's very confusing to me as a character. And so it, 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 but also because he's so fuzzy, there's a lot of room to write him in a lot of different ways. Like, you can write um, Gibbs as an asshole and I'll buy it. I'll totally buy it. Because you don't have to bend him very much. You don't have to tw- tinker with his motivation very much to make him an asshole. Because many times he was an asshole. Other characters, it's a lot harder to understand how you can make some characters. It's like, what are you bending? What are you working from to make um, a character? So, so not even like I would have a really hard time making Don an asshole. But like, can you imagine making Alan Epps an asshole? No. What are you Shut working up. from to do that? <laughs> I know it's like it's so offensive just to even think that. But like, what are you working from? Go what, sit in the corner, that, Jilly. <laughs> I mean, Alan S. is like the best dad on TV. So how do you turn that in? But that's something when you're taking a character and you are tweaking them, and some characters just lend themselves to turning them a degree or two, and you get something, you get an antagonist instead of a protagonist. Some characters don't lend themselves to that. So if they don't... Could I, the only way I could see um, him going off the deep end is if someone killed his boys. Yeah. And it would be a dark, dark place. Very dark. he is very invested in his sons. And that's the only thing I could think that would turn someone like him um, in, a, in a dark place. I agree. But you have to do something drastic to a character who is not at all fuzzy. If they are really clear about their motivations and they are really crafted well, you have to do something very drastic to them to change how they behave. And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But when you have characters, some characters are so bendable and we can do so much with them because they are not written with clear motivation. They're not written as crisply as like a character like Alan Epps or Don Epps. Um, characters like Sam, Sam Carter, um, Gibbs. Um, there are, there's these characters that just, they have, it, they have these fuzzy edges and it's really easy to keep them in character and turn them a degree or two, apply a little bit of pressure, apply a little bit of different motivation change your world bending a little bit, examine what the, how the, what the ripple effect would be on that personality, and you've got something that is completely different and completely believable. I think that I don't um, – when I make a character a bad guy who's, not, who's pretty neutral in canon, um, I'm not always successful, but I think that one time I was really successful with it was during Human Nature because I really didn't have to shift Jennifer Keller all that much. Right. I just turned her about 
30 degrees and gave her a little bit more motivation in the financial stability department. (laughs) I was like, why would she settle for a man in his early 40s? And the only thing that popped up in my mind was money. Because I don't think she has enough in common with McKay to love him. I really don't. I agree. They're night and day. Um, and then what would she do if suddenly that money was no longer available? And if she's mercenary enough to marry a man for money, she's mercenary enough to lash out at the person she blames for the 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 end of the on the a relationship she was depending on, um, and that was my 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 motivation behind Keller in in human nature, and I think it worked a lot better than um, I even anticipated. But a lot of times you can't really turn a character like that. Some people have a problem with the way I portrayed Sam Carter in Ties That Bind, but again, I really didn't have to change her all that much because in canon she is kind of arrogant and petty. And thinks she knows everything she needs to know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you put Sam in a position. I thought one of the things that spoke beautifully to Sam's motivation in Ties That Bind is someone who thinks they need to appear to be X, but what they really want is contrary to that. Yeah. And that sets up a dynamic in their own mind where they're going to behave in ways that are unexpected. So someone really, 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 um, I don't know, wanted to be, this is actually one of the most extreme examples I can think of is what you wrote. If someone wants to have the experience of submission, but feels like they have to present themselves as a dom, Mm -hmm. that's going to, that gives them all kinds of motivation for doing a lot of fucked up shit. Well, it's professional, um, it's professional ambition Against personal, um, mm-hmm. personal interest, right, and, and so, desire, right, exactly, yeah. And when when you put those two things, and you have a character who's very ambitious on the table, you can shift them around and make their actions believable. Mm-hmm. But you—that was one of the things I thought. In terms of when we think about character motivation, I thought that that was a beautiful job of showing how you apply different pressures to someone who they're the way they're established and with a certain set of character traits. And you know, it's like what pops out the other side is exactly what we got. I think so. Many times when you are reading, (laughs) when you're reading stories, sometimes and you you kind of you're reading something and you head tilt about the change in a character, it's because you can't extrapolate what pressures were applied to that character to create that end result. How did any form of pressure, you know, how would any form of pressure on Alan Epps turn him into a bomber? Right? It would just seem like I can't imagine, right? This is just, it doesn't make sense. Um, so it's important. No, I also think if he did lose his shit, he, it, I mean, it would be a crime of passion. Um, it, yeah, it wouldn't be something premeditated like that. I imagine if um, he lost his sons in the same moment 
to a killer um, that he would just have a complete and psychotic break. I agree. And it would be something Um, probably violent and in the moment. It would not be something cold and calculated that lasted for months. It's just not... It's not the way and then after would... it was over, he would be doubly devastated because not only had he lost his sons, but he lost himself too. Yeah, it would be terrible. But it's, it's also really easy why um, it's so so super easy to make Dumbledore the bad guy in Harry Potter um, because while J.K. Rowling obviously never meant to write him as a manipulative old motherfucker who let a child be abused and then. Encouraged them to commit suicide. That's exactly what she did. And this is this is again that case of where you're trying to accomplish this thing over here. So you've got to imagine like two pictures, and you're trying to accomplish this thing with Harry over here, and you don't think about what the consequences are when you move into your picture on the other side of the screen, where now Dumbledore is in the focus. He's already a dick. Super dick. He's like the super I don't mean dick a fun one either. <laughs> and, and not the fun kind either. <laughs> I obviously anybody can do whatever they want in their story. It's your story. But I think I mean I don't I can't speak to Kara's motivation completely here, but I think the idea is to get people thinking about how to improve your writing, how to improve characterization, how to improve, you know, because characterization, character development is a challenge. It's very difficult. And working on, when you take established characters and you work on their motivation and you tweak them, that is a really good skill for learning to build original characters. And yeah, Once you've done that, building an original character is um, almost a piece of cake. Because once you have successfully turned... Um, shifted a canon character into your own vision and it looks natural you're you're already there you've got the skill you've picked it up you've learned it and if you want to then want to start putting OCs into your stories and you want to start developing original characters you you know what to do you know what is interesting you know how to build something that is what you want and how to make them consistent. Um, consistent characterization is so, so important. And the one thing that I was, this is, we're talking more about character motivation and building characters, but when you build a character, when you've done this thing, you've taken your character and you've applied different pressures on them and you've changed the way they behave, the absolute last thing that would happen is that canon events would play out the same way. And we see this the most in Harry Potter fandom is people change Harry fundamentally but they change don't him. Change anything. And that somehow he does the first seven happen. Oh gosh. The first seven books all proceed apace. It's like <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, 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 you get whiplash. It's like I don't understand. Why in the world would a Harry who was raised with supporting loving parents have gone after the Philosopher's Stone. Why? It doesn't make sense. But you see that over and over and over again, is that we're changing Harry, we're giving him a different background, we're we're writing these personal wrongs that we are so offended by, and yet then canon continues the pace. And it's, it's jarring and unnatural. 
Because now what's, what's happened is your character is now out of character. All that work you did is for nothing. Okay. Question. Harry grows up in a supportive, loving family. He gets sorted into Gryffindor, and he's in there, and he's doing his thing. And The headmaster announces the third floor is off limits on pain of death. What, what does Harry Potter do? Writes his mom and says, what the fuck, mom? Okay, now, why didn't any of the other kids who supposedly grew up in good, supportive families write their parents and say, hey, the headmaster says we'll die if we go to the third floor? Susan Bone should have written her aunt and said, Auntie, you never told me that there were deadly corridors at Hogwarts (laughs) and that we might die here. I'm scared. What the fuck? Why didn't Susan Bone's owl her her aunt why didn't Draco who complained about every fucking thing that went wrong to his daddy why didn't he who and, and, and Lucius Malfoy was all about getting Dumbledore out of Hogwarts at this point write home and say hey the headmaster has something super stupid dangerous on the third floor that we can't go to or we'll die you now have thousands of children Supposedly, even though we only select 400 in the, in the, in the, in the movie. Right. Who have, <laughs> potentially, who have, who have, who, who have characterized badly. You have now put, you have made at least half those kids written them out of character in one fell swoop. <laughs> it's actually kind of remarkable. <laughs> Well, because, you know, I think the one character who probably did write home and tell her mom there was a dangerous, evil thing on the third floor was Hermione. But what did her parents do? They were muggles. <laughs> they couldn't even see the school, much less go up there to complain. <laughs> Which leads you that then you with Hermione and her parents, if you write Hermione as having good parents, you have to wonder why they allowed her to stay in Hogwarts. If you write well, if you write Hermione having, with, with good parents, you have to... Um, give them excuses for her to stay in Hogwarts. She can't leave because of magical law. She has to complete her um, education unless she's thrown out and her wand is snapped. Um, Otherwise, her parents are dicks. Right. And that's the easy path to go down is Hermione has shitty parents. Um, And sometimes it actually works better for whatever fan fiction somebody's writing is that Hermione has negligent parents because um, it's easier to pull um, an unloved child away from a family than a loved child. Right, and I did it in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. Um, And I went in an opposite direction in another story. Um, And um, often, because I do have problems with religion and I've, don't have a problem admitting that. Um, I do make her parents ultra-religious who are freaked out by magic because, honestly, that makes sense to me. If you were devoutly religious and somebody sent a letter to your daughter telling them that she was a witch, especially if you were Catholic, <laughs> there's a lot of ugly history there between... Um, Witchcraft and the Catholic Church. It's just, it, it, it was easy to do and it got them out of the way and, and, it, and it served my plot. Um, and the other side of it is you have to write them as characters who are utterly powerless to have any impact on their daughter's life. 
and, and even then if you accept they hate that, the magical world. Oh yes, and even if you accept that, but they can't do anything about Hermione um, attending Hogwarts. What I find unfathomable is that she's away from home so much at 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and she still ends up with the Weasleys every summer, except for the first one. She rarely spends more than a couple of weeks with her parents. Her canon lends Hermione's parents to being negligent. Absent. Absent, very absent. Who has a brilliant child who was a seemed adult at a very young age who they could leave alone and let tend to herself. Um, Another character like this, for those of you who watch Buffy, was Willow. We never see Willow's parents, practically, except when they tried to burn her at the stake. And um, she, uh, she was mature young, and her parents were psychologists who were traveling all the time, and they would just leave for months on end and leave her money for food and let her tend to herself. And it's easy to cast Hermione's parents in the same kind of role. And that's terrible. And canon sort of supports it. Because what parent um, what parent allows their child sees their child two weeks a year? So when you make a plot decision you un- maybe unintentionally are establishing motivation and attributes to potentially hundreds of characters, and it bears thinking about. Well, one so of the biggest canon non-events in Harry Potter is the fact that Sirius Black didn't have a trial. I know. Which and makes dump- every single person who might have... Oh, you know what? There was never even been... Bellat- Bellatrix Lestrange got a fucking trial. And the thing is that, that supposedly Dumbledore, who's the, the supreme mugwump of the ICW and the chief warlock of the Wizengamot, and he can do nothing about somebody who's had a, hasn't had a trial, that actually puts the, the, minute, the British government as a dictatorship. Yeah, it does. If the if the minister has that much power, everything else are show titles. If according to canon, if you think about the ramifications of canon, um, but then the minister turns out to be made of paper when Voldemort is revealed. Immediately he's replaced. Mm-hmm. So obviously he doesn't have as much power as we all thought he did. Which again puts Dumbledore in the role of being the biggest fucking asshole. Whoever put on a purple robe. <laughs> there is, when you start examining plot inconsistencies and character inconsistencies in Harry Potter, I'd say 90% of the time, the logical conclusion is Dumbledore is evil. <laughs> <laughs> and if he's not manipulating everybody else in Britain, they're all evil too. They weren't worth saving. Harry should have just moved to Australia with Hermione's parents and put them in therapy. <laughs> there, You could make a case that would actually make sense that Britain is under a giant loyalty spell, that there is a giant, and that everyone is potioned in the water or something, and it would actually 
it wouldn't it wouldn't be too far fetched. And that even people who hate Dumbledore are mildly affected by it. Well, if Dumbledore started teaching at Hogwarts in the 30s... Sounds about right. Then most of the people who are in positions of power were either his student... Were were his students, whether as professor or as... um, Headmaster. I once had this, like, this minor little, this minor, tiny, itty-bitty little plot thing. I um, I keep a notebook in my purse, and sometimes I write little Start things down. Started teaching at Hogwarts in 1910. 1910. Oh, my God. That's, that's like, can you imagine how many people he could have infected with a loyalty curse at that point? Is there anybody in... But see, the thing is, is if he actually accomplished that, then Tom Riddle wouldn't be his enemy. And there wouldn't be any Death Eaters. They would all be in the Order of the Phoenix doing whatever the hell Dumbledore wanted them to do. And if that's the case, then maybe Tom Riddle isn't a Dark Lord after all. Maybe he's just a servant from Dumbledore. Maybe he's a freedom fighter. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he got loose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could actually write that story because you could write the story that Riddle was actually um, like a rebel. Like he was building up a resistance, and Dumbledore cursed him insane. That'd be really interesting, actually. But I did have this little—I have this little notebook I keep in my purse, and I write down little ideas that I have when I'm when I'm you know out and about. And one time I thought I put down um, in my notebook, "What if the guy that sells them wands is manipulating the entire country?" That's scary. Because he's in the position to influence every single student that goes to Hogwarts because they all buy their wands from him their first year. And they get so sentimental about it, if their wand breaks, who do they go to? The person who gave them their first wand. I'm not saying he's evil, but what if he's like a fae? Oh. Kind of like he's um, he's the balance. He keeps balance between good and dark. Light and dark. And if he thinks you should be a little more dark, you get this kind of wand. And if he thinks you should be a little more light... You should have this kind of wand, except for people who don't get wands from him, and then they don't do well in magic because they don't have their own wand that's made just for them. Which is why Ron's wand didn't do well when he was the first year or second year, and why Neville didn't do well until he had his own wand. I'm just, you know, it's just it's a it's a curious way to look at it, and the, because the wands are also different, and they all have different materials, and you know, and he talks about this would be a good for charms, but. What if it's more than that? Because one, when if you follow the whole, um, it, there's an interesting. I, I almost call it a fault in the world building of Harry Potter is with the sheer prevalence of compulsion potions and compulsion magics, and 
that people are very trusting about certain things. They're very trusting about entering a flu. They're very trusting about accepting magical items like a wand. I'd be suspicious right. as hell. <laughs> I'd be, you know, I probably would have been like destined to be an unspeakable from like birth. If like, I were can we person. really trust a guy that's giving us the wand? I'd be and afraid to enter somebody's house. What if they have a compulsion charm on their fucking doorway? Exactly. I mean, I'd be running detection spells all the time. I would be worse than Moody. No wonder Moody's so paranoid. He caught on. <laughs> and, you know, you address this in subtle ways in several of your stories where, like, Harry, um, when he takes a potion, that he doesn't um, – he, he stashes the um, – the vials in his in his whatever bracelet or whatever um, dimensional space he's carrying with him to be cleaned later, because it, it's an inherent risk. Blood, um, blood, saliva. hair, saliva. All of these things are an inherent risk in the magical world. I mean, you've got to figure that in a realistic magical world, people would have like um, spells that prevent like hairs from falling off until they like go home or something like that or they don't fluff skin cells and stuff because it, it's, when, you, when you can use a piece of a single hair to take someone's appearance that's that a really dangerous magical precedent. I mean the only stop gap she gave for that is polyjuice is difficult and to brew, and it takes a very long time to brew. But that is implying that you can't go buy it. Right, and then she didn't turn. Then she turned right around, and she set this up as being a very difficult potion and inserted a character for an entire school year using, using poly it. juice. So it, it can't be that hard. It's time-consuming, but the thing is, is that he probably bought it. Probably. Or it was brewed before he ever came to Hogwarts, before he ever captured Moody. That could be one of the Dark Lord's more stark, you know, kind of potions that is something he would stock. Of course, he wasn't with well, the Dark Lord because the Dark Lord hadn't been resurrected yet, but Peter Pettigrew was, but I wouldn't think he'd be talented enough to brew polyjuice. In a war, um, polyjuice would be invaluable. Mm. And, you know, just having a big old sample, um, a realistic, like a like a, like a, a special forces. In the know, book, yes, Snape mentions that he's missing um, um, polyjuice ingredients. So at some point, Crouch has to start brewing his own. That doesn't mean he didn't come to Hogwarts with a supply. It would have been dumb if he didn't because it takes a very long time to brew, like three months. Two months, I think. But Two th- months? That, whole, that mention of polyjuice in the, in the, in the story was con- felt very contrived to me at the time. Um, when I read that, I went, well, it's the same thing as um, Lily's letter. to. We talked about Lily's letter to Sirius last night. That whole thing felt very contrived. And that's the, really the last thing you want to do is put obvious mentions, obvious, really, really obvious contrived indicators of what's about to happen in your story. Like the mentions of the, um, in the letter, the mention of Gellert Grindelwald. That whole thing felt like it was about mentioning Grindelwald. Um, but it actually doesn't make sense 
from a logistical standpoint, with everything he has to do, that he'd be brewing his own polyjuice. Because the amount of time and effort involved, uh, when he has to control Moody and teach and grade papers, and the other way he's probably Moody in that trunk, because Moody was a very advanced. Um, you know, I can't say that word. Or, or, or that's how I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, or, the A word. He was um, he was high up there, and he was he was a big deal. So the only way that um, he's keeping him in that trunk is he's subduing him magically in some way, um, and he's probably having to renew that pretty often. Um, I don't know if he's using an imperious curse, but probably not because Moody. Um, Moody might be able to throw it off. Right. So I would, he's. I would think in Moody's position, he would have been trained to throw it off. But he's probably being potioned. And there's probably compulsion charms. Maybe um, he's been under sleeping charms. Maybe he's been given draught of living death. Although he wasn't unconscious when they found him. Right. Draught of living so, death actually makes a lot of sense, but. So he had, but then maybe he can't take hair from Moody if he's not if he's potioned if he's he's potioned that way or if he's potioned at all because wouldn't the potions impact him so how is he keeping Moody in the trunk how does he have timing to breathe it's just you know it actually makes Crouch one of the most efficient and um, successful Death Eaters in the entire series for all that he was portrayed also as being kind of crazy and unpredictable. And he was the crazy one. <laughs> and he really, can you imagine Bellatrix being able to do that? Because he kept his cover. He taught successfully enough that no one questioned his, his course materials or his grading. He was grading these little shits on their work. And even when he did things that were obnoxious, the occasional things that were obnoxious, it was written off as being kind of like Moody, because Moody was kind of obnoxious. Moody's the kind of person who would transfigure a student to teach them a lesson. Right. So he's um, he's keeping this he's, he's keeping Moody in a trunk. He's brewing his own potions. Um, he's teaching class, he's grading, he's crazy as shit, and absolutely no one catches on. He should be in charge of the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. He's much more competent than Tom Riddle. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> he's very competent. Barty Crouch Jr. could be the most competent um, Death Eater. He's much better than um, even Snape. He clearly had good impulse control, which was the flaw of a lot of the Death Eaters. For being Slytherin, they had really shitty impulse control problems. Well, yeah, Lucius Malfoy um, gave us a really good example of that in the end of book two, when he almost had used the killing curse on Harry Potter in the middle of Harry Potter. The middle of Hogwarts. What the fuck? And why the hell didn't the wards go off when he tried to use a fucking unforgivable inside Hogwarts? Which then leads us to the common fan and trope that Dumbledore is fucked with the wards to have his pet Death Eater um, on the grounds. And he's an asshole. Because Why? Because it makes sense. <laughs> it makes so much sense. And the reason why we embrace the fanon that Dumbledore is an evil asshole is because there's so much logical consistency to it. Now, when we react negatively to 
a character as, as, as a whole, as a broad group, when we react negatively to a character being evil or being the bad guy, it's because there's no logical consistency to it. No one can find it, and you haven't written it into the story to why that person would be an asshat. But some characters, you don't have to go far. You don't have to do anything to make Dumbledore an asshat because it sort of gels and fixes so many things in canon. It's like, well, of course, all of these things happen because Dumbledore is evil. During year two, a dangerous animagus repeatedly invaded Hogwarts. And eventually Dumbledore found this out. And yet, in book four, Rita had no problem flitting around the entire school as a beetle. He did not correct the security in Hogwarts to prevent... Now, he might not have been able to because of Minerva. And maybe he didn't want to get notifications all day about Minerva being in the building. Or he couldn't make an exception for her. I don't know. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It just... When you live in a world where some pervy fucking Death Eater spends seven plus years living with a bunch of little boys as a rat, you fucking figure out how to fix that shit. Mm-hmm. That's what responsible adults do. Which reminds me of that, um, there's a story, um, it's called Lily's Changes, I believe, where when Harry dies, he meets his mother instead of Dumbledore, and she flips out on him and sends him back in time to fix all the fuck-ups. And he ends up fixing Tom Riddle in Quirrell's body, getting him all back together so he's sane again. And Quirrell becomes the headmaster of Hogwarts, and he makes all the teachers take vows to do everything they can to prevent students from getting hurt. You can imagine how stressful the first Quidditch game was. <laughs> All the bludgers got destroyed. It was great. <laughs> it was just like, this is when you realize just how dangerous Hogwarts is because these kids couldn't do anything <laughs> certain point teachers were whipping their wands out because they couldn't help themselves because they'd all been you know um vowed to um they'd all vowed to protect students and apparently living at dangerous was actually very dangerous very do you know it's interesting that um harry potter canon is very blase about the death of children very blase about it um, something that I said in that last sentence to you seemed like an instruction to Siri, so she just talked to me and told me that uh, <laughs> that let me look into that. <laughs> yeah, you, I was wondering what that. the hell that was. <laughs> you do that, you possess little phone. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, but they're very cavalier about children dying. I yes. you know, like with with the, with the um uh having the taking children into the forbidden forest for which is supposed to be off limits because it's so dangerous for detention a bunch of first years really with a with a with a wizard who doesn't have a wand right <laughs> and a dog who who 
is they apparently very pussy? early on is 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 a, is um big level big and lovable not particularly dangerous um and then when they introduced the triwizard tournament i mean they basically applied a lot of people died in that competition before they decided it was too dangerous no um, who cares but harry potter's here this year so we're going to be having it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Saying. It was um somebody mentioned um um on Facebook, I won't call anybody call anybody names, but somebody mentioned on Facebook that they uh that the podcast last night got them to thinking about character motivation and, and, and ripples and consequences or what however it directly affected them and that they found a plot hole in something that they're working on and that they're um and you know something I actually, I, I was a little bit like, oh, and, uh, uh, there was this instant moment where I kind of wanted to go, sorry? But I did. Also, I, I said I was sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why, um, I think that's why we the, the, do these craft shows. Um, yeah, it is. Why it's you have point, them but so that so people can learn. Can, can learn and get better and think about these things. So that was actually kind of awesome, and I appreciated the person who shared that they had um, a craft-related epiphany. It's difficult, though, when you have an epiphany and you're, and you're knee-deep in a story and you're like, fuck shit, fuck shit, and then you end up just go standing in a corner and saying fuck 300 times because you're like, oh, and duality. <laughs> that whole that whole story is full of assholes. I, I, there's just no other way to say it. They're, they're, they're fucking assholes across the board. Every I character in the story, but Harry is an asshole. Just everybody's an asshole. And then they rocks fall and everybody dies. I, it, it's just like it's so. It makes me wonder if at the end, when she was writing the ending and after she finished her book, if J.K. Rowling realized that she had made Dumbledore worse. Than Tom Riddle. I can't think that she realized that. I mean, that would have been, for me, that would have been such a horrible realization. That it's devastating. I, I I don't know that I could have put the book out. <laughs> well, she already been paid for that book, so there was no saying no to that part. <clears throat> well, that's true. But I think at some point when you're writing a very large series like that, you get um, there's a there's a point of no return, and she yeah. probably reached the point of no return on that particular um, train near the With order Dumbledore? of the Phoenix. You Book think that five. was the point of no return? I thought that yes, because of... that's when, that's when he admitted that he knew that Harry would grow up in a dark situation. That's when he admitted the prophecy, and you found out that that Harry Potter um, was prophesized to defeat a very dark, very evil, very powerful wizard, and they've spent the five the last five years teaching him how to turn beetles into fucking teacups. Yeah, and that's when that's you, when you he, know his, his last source of of comfort has been murdered. That's when he you cement Dumbledore, I think, as um, completely evil and a complete dark lord in his own right. Um, there were several moments prior to that where um, 
I, I, I guess Hinky. That's probably the, that's the point of no return. But I mean, from from the from his first action in the book, the first book. Right. Is there a warming charm? Is Harry been charmed to sleep? Will he be safe until Petunia finds him on the front doorstep? I mean, the only, the way you handle that scene <laughs> is you you bring Harry in the morning when when Petunia is awake, <laughs> and you hand you the knock baby on off. the door and you tell her. I'm so sorry that you're dead, but your sister has died, and um, we need you to protect Harry. You're the only one we've got. Just imagine what kind of impact that might have had on Petunia, who's always been ordinary, who's never had anything special because she didn't have magic and she wanted to have what she probably considered the most powerful wizard in Britain come to her with a baby and say, we need you to do this, and nobody else can. And in return, it would have re- you, it, your family will be safe. It would have reshaped her interactions with Harry. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have just been a burden. He would have been part of this great duty she'd been trusted with, and she would no longer be ordinary. She would be doing something special. That only she can do. But that's not what he did. No, he left her an obligation um, on the doorstep with like like a bottle of milk, and um, with basically kind of a threat. Yeah. It's terrible. People are terrible, and you you just. It inspired all of these little things, all of these inconsistencies in characterization and in plot. They inspired probably the biggest fandom that we may ever see. Uh, Harry Potter, as, as a fandom, as a, as, a, as a body of fan fiction works, is, is enormous. It is enormous. I was over on um, fanfiction.net, and they list the number of of of. Um, if you just go over and click on books and then Harry Potter, there are, there are 573,000 stories on fanfiction.net alone. Before for Harry Potter. Fanfiction.net did the um, the M purge, they've done several when they decided yeah. not to allow it and then allow it. There was at one point that there was over a million Harry Potter stories on fanfiction.net. Yeah. A million stories on one archive. That is an enormous fandom. And a lot of it was inspired because of, I believe, because we have characters we like coupled with things we want to fix. And the last thing I think a fan fiction writer wants is to inspire (laughs) the same thing about their own fix. We need to fix your shit, so we're going to write this over again. I hope you don't mind. We're down to 51 seconds. Tomorrow we're having our um, plot drift, um, and uh, Senna will hopefully be on board for that. And um, our fandom is going to be Hawaii Five-O, and that's the only um, hint you get right now. And I will announce the plot drift itself around um, about 30 minutes before the show. Uh, That way she doesn't have time to brainstorm, and I put her on the spot. And you guys have a great rest of the evening. Night, everyone.